Hi, I'm Babs Weber, and welcome to Paused at Home, an Alberta Social Innovation Connect podcast. The pandemic and economic downturn this spring have forced many changemakers to pause or to pivot. As we head into the summer, although our province is experimenting with opening some aspects of our lives, we still have a lot to adapt. In light of our work structures changing on a daily basis, and the pause we're in at home, we've decided to touch base with changemakers across Alberta to hear about the new questions and reflections on their minds during this period of systems change. Some episodes will pair together multiple voices chatting about one question. Others will have a solo perspective. If the question sparks new thoughts for you, please share in the comments on your favorite listening platform and let us know what you think. Jerome Morgan is a social innovator and member of ABSE's Community Catalyst Program, working in central Alberta on a project to work with the BIPOC community, Black, Indigenous and people of colour, to encourage and grow their capacity to harness social innovation and design thinking to solve stuck problems in their community. In the process, they've been growing his capacity as well. Our host, Elise Martinowski, spoke with both Jerome and his co-designer separately. Marenike Olaushikibon started Ruben Rouge to use art for social change, especially health equity for people of African descent. Hello, Jerome. It's so great to have you as a guest on the show today. Thank you for being here. To get us started, could you please introduce yourself along with what you do? Hi, my name is Jerome Morgan. Um, I, I'm an innovator. I try to create space for folks to look at social innovation to solve big challenges um, and sticky challenges and for different communities across Alberta. So what's the question that you're sitting with right now in light of the times that we're in and the shift of the way we work? Yeah, um, I think there's been a couple questions, but you know, the, the one of the biggest ones that I kind of been uh, teasing out and thinking about was, you know, where do our value systems come from? And just understanding like on a conscious level of why do we value certain things versus other things? And, and are we really conscious of our value systems of what we place power in and, uh, and uh, value in? And then what things do we question and not, ch- and not question? So um, yeah, where do our value systems come from and, and, and how do we decide um, which ones we keep and which ones we don't keep? Where do you think they come from for you, the value system? What would be your response yeah. to that question? Yeah, definitely. Especially through some of the work that we've been doing, kind of rolling out online sessions and stuff. Our participants challenged us with that, um, with that question. And um, as facilitators, as uh, individuals that are co-designing workshops for uh, marginalized populations, which value system are you bringing? Which lens are you bringing? For me, it was a question around, are we reinforcing uh, a colonized framework? Are we reinforcing a Eurocentric framework to ground communities that were dealing with racism and, and inequity? And how, how can you solve big challenges for a community that is dealing with inequality and marginalization? And so it was, it was a big question around, yeah, what are we reinforcing? Um, are we reinforcing the history of the marginalized population um, by um, including ideas that are not challenged and questioned around power and exclusion and the history um, and so, yeah, how do you solve questions around racism without having a decolonizational lens? If we were not challenging the uh, Western um, uh, uh, worldview, 
and and grounding it in the the worldview of the, the audience and just understanding yeah the value systems are going to be different depending on the worldview that you're you're looking at it from and so participants challenged us um around that around can you solve racism with a eurocentric way of looking at things where the power dynamics are reinforced for a certain community um, and we had some really tough challenges around, yeah, how do we unpack that? How do we unpack exclusion and marginalization, a worldview that has a history of that? And so it then made us understand that we had to center or ground ourselves within the group that we're working with was the African Caribbean um, uh, Black community in Alberta. And so they said, can you center our um, your innovation around um, our uh, indigenous African um, knowledge systems and uh, indigenous Caribbean knowledge systems for us to then be able to unpack and decolonize um, living within um, a Western society like Edmonton or like Alberta. What they put as important is going to be different if they ground it with a different knowledge system. Definitely. What have been um, some of your findings when you've done, done that um, thought process? It definitely has made me question and, and really look at, um, as a person, how I, I identify, um, look at my education and training, you know what I mean? I started to recognize that most of the tools around social innovation is from a Western context. Um, what does that mean? Most of the examples are from a Western context. Um, so the perspective around solving challenges were going to be from a Western context in a certain way. And so we started to then look at indigenous innovation from North America. Um, and then what does that mean? Are there some learnings there? And then we started looking at Indigenous African innovation and Indigenous African um, uh, ways of being and thinking. And so it started to make us then understand there's multiple knowledge systems that's there. And so which one do you choose to operate from? And there's not one, one that's better than the other, depending on the, the challenge or the question or the, the issues that you're looking at, well, it's important for you to then be conscious of it. Of, of how are we operating and which ones are we going to be using and grounding our, our practice or grounding our, our work in. And then if you ground yourself in that, then you have to then evaluate what are the potential opportunities and where, where are the potential limitations. And you have to name these things, um, name them for participants, name them um, for the audience, because if you don't, um, you're doing a disservice. And, and we had some, some questions from the audience around that, um, of uh, that critical component. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of learning um, as a facilitator of like just assuming or just thinking that, yeah, these tools are going to be useful for all audiences and, um, and that they don't have negative impacts. And I think our audience told us, yes, they do. Very mm -hmm. interesting. You've given me lots to think about. I know that. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, yeah. definitely. Mm -hmm. definitely. Because the change that you're trying to get is depending on the perspective of the person or who's impacted. Who, whose empathy are you are you empathizing with, or who who are you? Who's the end user? So if the end user is a person that has been marginalized within society within a certain way, um, and you're trying to create a solution for them, where are you starting? Are you going to meet them where they're at, um, and where they're at might be looking up or looking um, left or looking right. It's not necessarily from where you're sitting or from the place of where the system's operating at. And so it's really important to be critical of that. Are we trying to move people to just be part of the system? Or are we trying to move people to transform the system? Or to relearn or to decolonize the system? So it's really important of what's the goals of those individuals. And the goals are sometimes, you know, 
um, uh, different for different individuals that's part of the, the community. But we have to learn that and unpack that and understand what does that mean for people to then uh, know where to pivot from um, and to then know what tools to use to unpack and learn together. I love that piece of, are you part of the system or are you part of transforming the system? That's a really interesting concept for sure. I'm going to leave it there and then we'll touch base with our community partner and see what she has to say about that too. See what definitely, her perspective definitely. is on it. Awesome. awesome. Yeah, this is great. Hello, Morani Kay. Thank you so much for joining me today and taking some time to respond to the big questions Jerome is sitting with, as well as to share the big questions you yourself are sitting with. Um, before we jump into these big questions that I've now talked about three times, could you please introduce yourself along with what you do? My name is Moreni Kerr and I'm the president and founder of the Ribbon Rouge Foundation, which uses arts for social change in particular to achieve health equity for people of African descent. Thank you for that introduction. It is so wonderful to have you here. So just a few moments ago, we had the chance to hear from Jerome around the big questions he's sitting with right now and his response to those questions. What is your take on his question of where do our value systems come from and how do we decide which values we want to hold on to or not? I find that my value systems come from my childhood. I had this super eclectic childhood with parents who dabbled into many entrepreneurial endeavors in this vivacious, vibrant, chaotic, creative, resourceful place called Lagos in Nigeria. And I think most of the way I see the world, things I value as important, uh, how I show up really comes from my childhood and a lot of the experiences I had growing up. And I think that it is very close uh, to the surface and I'm really quite conscious and aware of the fact that that particular worldview is, is really quite um, predominant in how I see the world, what I think of as right and wrong, what I think of as important versus unimportant. Uh, and how I evaluate people, how I evaluate power, how I see injustice and justice, all of it, I think is deeply rooted in that upbringing and just in, in the acknowledgement of histories around colonization and the impact and the residual effect of that um, till present day and the fact that actually we're in a new form of colonization in many African countries. So, and even here in Canada. So I think that that worldview is very, very much from my childhood. <laughs> uh, and a lot of that still influences the decisions I make today about my life. It, it definitely contributes to what I question, what I don't question, what I, what I choose to keep and what I choose to let go of in my present reality. So now that we've heard from Jerome around his big questions and his response, and now your response to those questions, um, I'd like to give you a chance to share the big questions that you yourself are sitting with. Ah, what question am I sitting with right now in light of the pandemic and the shifting 
And how is the pandemic, you know, shifting the way I work or we work? So the thing about me is I'm also a pharmacist. And so uh, the, the truth is I actually haven't paused this entire time. Um, in fact, the first three weeks of the pandemic were at, at its height were really some of the most intense work hours I've had all year uh, because everybody who wasn't at home was in the pharmacy ordering toilet paper and pop and medications and really stockpiling on medication. So yeah, I, I think my work hours might have quadrupled in the initial wave and, and height of the pandemic. And, and I think that fed into what became my predominant question at the time was it, it really for me was an interesting experience watching the panic, um, mainly because I, I just started questioning how, how my relationship with death. I think I've made peace with my mortality. And what I was watching was a lot of fear around death in a way that I think showcased just uh, it it was it was it was interesting to watch so i understand and i and there there is a seriousness and gravity to covid and the need for self care and um self preservation and definitely uh sticking to the social distancing and the parameters around uh, public health and what I was watching was people acting out in fear to buy toilet paper and way more pop than anyone needs in their life and stockpiling on medications in way that ways that so we had we had people in two extremes. So there were the people who just didn't care about anybody else's life who would when they should clearly have been self isolating were showing up in the pharmacy and then there was the other extreme of people who were going above and beyond to stockpile everything they could get their hands on. And I right there just watching both ends, wondering what's wrong with me that I'm not doing, why am I not panicking to this extent necessarily? Um, I think for me, there was there was some questioning around mortality and and my value systems and my understanding and, and I guess reconciliation with the fact that one thing we all have in common is, is death and how we never talk about it and how much fear actually lives within that um, for all of us. I think that, that was a, a question or a reflection that definitely featured a lot in the, uh, in the, in the height of the pandemic as i watched people react to the pandemic for now i think the biggest question i'm sitting with is how technology is going to interact with our health in a really permanent way so there's the fact that we've now depended so heavily on technology as a way to connect with each other but then there's also the fact that a lot of people's jobs are going to be ren rendered obsolete because this time of pause actually highlighted for many companies the necessity or the 
lack of necessity of certain positions in their companies. And then there's the fact that technology companies now are have the incentive to develop all these interesting and innovative ways around communication. And so I, I guess I, I'm left with a question of what does technology for health uh, and social impact look like in the coming years as spurred on by the pandemic? Another big thank you to both of our guests of this episode, Jerome and Moranike, for sitting down with me and sharing and chatting about the big questions and reflections on their minds throughout this period of systems change. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pause. In the spirit of reconciliation, we'd like to feature land acknowledgements recorded by students of the Virtual School Project, a cohort of folks building a new education model that incorporates Indigenous ways of knowing and creates new pathways to meet the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action. Here we reside on Treaty 6 land alongside the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Diné, Métis, and Nakota Sioux. On this land, my ancestors took from, turned on, and harmed the people I now live with, so I acknowledge their wrongdoings. I acknowledge the harsh truth that my ancestors, the colonizers, took so much from my neighbors and friends and left so little to them. But I also acknowledge the bravery of the tribes, their selflessness, and their unwavering loyalty and connection to the land. My ancestors took so much from them, and yet the relationship to the land only grew stronger. I acknowledge this, and I acknowledge my understanding of it now, after so long. Their connection and the relationship with nature and the land has taught and continues to teach me so much about what she provides us and what she does to keep us alive and help us survive. And I am forever indebted to that. My connection and relationship with the land is still developing, but I've gained a better understanding of why it is needed. And finally, I acknowledge that despite our strengthening relationship with our neighbors and friends living alongside us on Treaty 6 land, there is still so much we can do, so much better we can be, to fully understand and acknowledge all that our ancestors have done and to undo the damage they caused. Because these tribes and so many others were here before us, living on the land, and they've taught us so much for us to be grateful for. If you enjoyed this episode, please help us out by sharing it with a friend and rating us on your favorite listening platform. We'd also love to feature your big question on a future episode. Find us at abseconnect.ca slash get hyphen involved for more information on how to be a guest. We'd like to thank our funding partner, the Suncor Energy Foundation, producer and editor Elise Martinowski of Absi Connect, and theme music creator Eilie Aurora. I'm Babs Weber. Thank you so much for listening.